This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 5th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Michael Udell discusses removing race from genetics research. Lena Wilfert talks about the role of a mite and a virus in the disruption of bee populations around the world. And of course, Dave Grimm is back with the latest from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on killing off stagnant cells. Are you carrying too much cellular baggage? (laughs) Do you just have too many loafing cells hanging around, doing nothing? Do you need a cellular cleanse? (laughs) (laughs) That's what researchers in this latest study were asking, probably in a much more serious way. And they're targeting senescent cells. Dave, what are those? Well, these are cells that sort of have reached the end of their useful life. They have some DNA damage, maybe other types of stress. And because of that, they're sort of programmed to stop dividing. But they don't necessarily die. They kind of stick around. And researchers think that they usually have good properties when they stick around. They can help wounds heal, for example. But there's a problem with these cells hanging around because if you can imagine, your organs are made up of cells, and if you have too many senescent cells, then your organs are going to start to break down because they've got a lot of faulty cells. And there's also been some evidence that these cells can contribute to tumor formation, which is obviously something we don't want. So in this research, they looked at the question, what happens if you take away all of those not-so-active cells? What did they do to get rid of them? Yeah, it was kind of cool. They had these mice, and they genetically modified them so that when they were given a drug, their senescent cells would basically commit suicide. Right. And it actually worked pretty well. When they gave the mice this drug, it killed, or at least caused these cells to kill themselves, about 50 to 70% of the cells disappeared in some of the tissues, which was really remarkable. And there was some really interesting effects of this as well. It seemed to reduce the amount of damage to blood filtering structures like the kidneys. The hearts of these animals were better able to cope with stress. And they were also more daring than the <laughs> control mice, which is really interesting. They they were more risk-taking, like younger mice are, which suggests that there was some kind of interesting impact on their behavior. The kind of big result that they mentioned, I think, in the title of this article is that the mice live longer. How much longer were they living? 
they live 20% longer, which is pretty remarkable. If we live 20% longer, that might be an extra 20 plus years, depending on how long we were going to live in the first place. So that's pretty remarkable. And how does that compare to some of the other life lengthening treatments we've seen over the years? Well, there have been some studies in mice that show that taking out a specific pain receptor can extend lifespan by about 14%. Also, calorie restriction can increase lifespan by up to 40%, at least in mice, although that's a pretty severe diet. Wouldn't you rather just take a pill? (laughs) Yeah. Well, what about the rest of the body? We, We focused in on kidney and brain. Is everything reversed or are some things still aging even with these senescent cells cleared out? Well, what the researchers found was that the memory, the muscle strength, the coordination, and the balance of these mice was actually no better than that of controls, which suggests that these features were not impacted by removal of senescent cells. This is all in mice, as we keep saying. Is this going to survive the jump? Is this going to survive the jump to humans? Well, that's always the big question. But, you know, one of the experts uh, that we talked to for the article was actually pretty optimistic because that person can actually see how a clinical trial could be done. With some of these things, it's kind of hard. Things we can do in mice, we can't necessarily do in people. But there are some indications that we could try this or something like it in people. So maybe a clinical trial might not be that far off. Next up, we have a story on smart sweatbands. I've seen a lot of Fitbits in this office, uh, people counting their steps, even getting in little competitions. But maybe next year, they'll all be wearing a new type of technology. What's the latest improvement in wristband health monitoring, Dave? The latest improvement is flexible wristbands that can taste your sweat for all (laughs) intents and purposes. The real advance here is creating wristbands with these very specific sensors that don't just measure the amount of steps you're taking or your heart rate, which is what most of these electronic bands do today. They actually can sample the concentrations of chemicals in your sweat, such as sodium and potassium, and also glucose and lactate. And all this together can give scientists a much more specific idea of what's happening in your body in real time. This isn't the first time someone's tried to capture sweat data from people. What makes the approach here different? It's not invasive. We're not talking about jabbing needles into people. It's things that people are already wearing. We know people are wearing things like Fitbits. So it's sort of incorporating into a technology that we're already familiar with and comfortable with. And again, it's it's flexible. Some previous designs have been fairly rigid, which wasn't as comfortable. Also, it's got sensors that actually transmit this data wirelessly to your smartphone. And pretty much everybody's got a smartphone right now. So that makes it very convenient. And this goes beyond fitness tracking. You can also sample for drugs. Yeah, the point is to try to figure out, are there other processes in the body that these things can monitor? Things like how you're responding to a particular drug regimen, for example, and also things when you're exercising, monitoring things like fatigue, dehydration, overheating. You know, say you're jogging and your smartphone starts beeping and say, like, you got to slow down, otherwise you're going to have a heart attack or something like that, right? You know, we don't really have the technology to do that right now. Is this a medical device or an, I don't know what, a consumer-friendly, you know, exercise aid? (laughs) It seems like a little bit of both, doesn't it? Right. But there is an important distinction because if they market it as a medical device, it actually has to get FDA approval, which could take years. But if they market it as a fitness device, it could be on the market a lot sooner. Lastly, we have a story on getting mother's microbes. My favorite topic, the microbiome, is back. In this case, we're talking about the initial set we get when we're born. Most of a newborn's microbes come from the vaginal canal during the baby's grand entrance into the world. But what about cases where babies are delivered by C-section? What do their microbes look like then? 
And actually, their microbes tend to be different. Babies that are born vaginally tend to have a lot of microbes, perhaps not surprisingly, that resemble those of the birth canal. But those that are born via C-section have a lot of microbes that resemble those of the mother's skin, also perhaps not surprising. The big question is, does that difference make a difference? Right. So what are some of the links that the researchers try to connect C-section birth with down the road? Well, the science isn't settled, but there is some suspicion that having microbes from the mother's birth canal can protect against things like asthma, obesity, and other health issues, which is why there's some concern if you're having a lot of children born via C-section, as is happening in Latin America, where in some countries up to 50% of births are via C-section, what might be the long-term health impact for some of these children? In this study, the researchers tried to actually alter the microbes of newborns that were born via C-section. What do they do? How do they do that? It's a pretty simple intervention when you think about it. Basically, what they did was they put some gauze inside the mother's vagina shortly before she gave birth. And after this baby was born via C-section, they wiped this gauze uh, all over the infant for a couple minutes. Did that do anything to their microbial populations? Surprisingly, it had an effect. The researchers found that over the next 30 days, the microbiomes of these kids that were born via C-section more closely resembled the microbiomes of the kids that were born vaginally versus the controls that didn't get wiped down with this gauze. And these are all really small numbers, right? These are really small numbers. Actually, they only had four infants that received the treatment versus uh, just seven controls. So it's a pretty small study. And the follow-up was 30 days. So is that the next step, getting bigger sample, longer time? It was a short follow-up. And the other issue is that not all the microbiome changed. So the, the researchers saw changes in the skin and the mouth, but not necessarily changes that would be indicative of a changing gut microbiome, which is the microbiome we talk a lot about when we talk about things like susceptibility to disease, obesity, things like that. So it's not clear that just changing sort of more of the surface microbiome is going to have a long-term impact on health. What about the links to asthma and obesity? Are we any closer to figuring out whether or not that's related to C-sections and microbiomes? And that's the big question. You know, we can go through a lot of this effort to make an infant's microbiome that's born via C-section a lot similar to the infant that's born vaginally, but does it make a difference in the long run? Does having this vaginal microbiome really protect us against all of these things like asthma and obesity? And that's a big question that scientists still need to settle before they start embarking on some of these interventions. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about what stem cells have to do with thinning hair. Also a story about why women are more likely to catch a yawn than men and what that says about the differences in empathy between the sexes. For Science Insider, we've got a story about U.S. Vice President Joe Biden's plan to tackle cancer with $1 billion and where that money is going to come from. Also, we've got continuing coverage on the Zika virus, including an explainer that answers all of your pressing questions. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Should race be used as a variable in genetics research when it doesn't really have a basis in genetics? I spoke with Michael Udell about what scientists and the journals that publish their research can do to ensure we continue to study human diversity while moving past historical conceptions of race. 
for more than a century, scientists have been arguing about whether race is a useful tool in the biological sciences. What can it tell us about the relationship between humans and their evolutionary history, between humans and their health? In the wake of the Human Genome Project, the answer seemed to be not a whole lot. Francis Collins has since called race a flawed and weak concept and argued that we needed to move beyond it. Yet the use of race persists in genetics, despite voices like Collins, like Craig Venter and others, leaders in the field of genomics who have called upon the field to move beyond it. Now, they, of course, were not the first to do so, and our paper points out this long history and long debate about race in science. But we believe it's time to revisit this debate and bring biologists, social scientists, and scholars from the humanities together to find better ways to study the ever-important subject of human diversity. Now, as you say, the history of race and science is very long and complicated, and the human genome kind of says stop using it to define people and to use as categories in science in scientific research, what are some of the big problems with how race is being used in biological research today? So I think it's really important that you have brought up the historical aspects of this because there is a long and controversial discussion in the social sciences and in the natural sciences about the role of race in biological research. It really dates back to W.E.B. Du Bois, the sociologist and civil rights leader, who at the turn of the 20th century in his uh, scholarly work made some pretty powerful arguments against why race was not a useful scientific category and pointed out ways in which race was being used to perpetuate racism. Later, Franz Boas, the great anthropologist, would argue against racial categories. And then Theodosius Dobzhansky, who is unfortunately not as well known today as he once was, but he was one of the great evolutionary thinkers of the 20th century, was really the first evolutionary biologist to rethink race in the 1930s. And his ideas about race are the ones we've really been struggling with in the field for the last 70 or 80 years. Now, today, in most cases in modern biology, there are very few people out there who are trying to use race to prove the inferiority or superiority of one group over the other. Right. But still, we believe the race concept should be removed from genetics research. And our issue is threefold. First, we don't believe that genetics supports the classification of humans into discrete races, and this is what one would expect from a species like humanity that has been interbreeding among itself for many, many, many years. Secondly, racial assumptions are not good biological guideposts. This is true for two reasons. First, races are not genetically homogeneous, and they lack clear-cut boundaries. And second, because using race as a proxy to make predictions about health outcomes are not very good. Now, medicine can make guesses about one's health in relationship to one's genes, but are we serving patients well if medical decisions are made because a certain patient identifies as part of a, a particular racial group or who are identified by someone else as belonging to a specific race? Wouldn't it be better, as Craig Venter and others have shown, to look directly at the genes in question? And third, we do not believe that a variable that is so mired in both historical and contemporary controversy really ha should have a place in modern genetics. You know, race has both scientific and social meanings that are impossible to tease apart, and we worry that using such a concept in modern genetics does not serve the field well. Yeah. And, and an everyday geneticist, if there is such a thing, where do they come across the idea of race when they're conducting their studies? How does it come into, you know, the practice of science on a daily basis? Race gets used as a variable in all sorts of research. 
our issue isn't with race per se. You know, race is, of course, real. We live in a country where skin color has long been used as a way to systematize discrimination and brutality. But that's not what we're arguing in this paper. We're arguing simply that race is not a useful tool to study human genetic diversity and that there is potential harm in doing so. We don't want to see race eliminated from all research. Our only call is to reconsider the way in which race is used in a genetic context, the way in which it reinforces ideas that there are discrete biological differences between populations of people. So what are some new ways of thinking about genetic diversity that might be more fruitful in terms of scientific research? So, you know, that's sort of where our paper leaves off. Our paper really digs into the current challenges, and what we do with the paper is make two recommendations. One is we call on scientific journals to help rationalize the use of terminology that's used to classify humans. To date, this has been done only in a piecemeal fashion, making any sort of sustained field-wide change unfeasible and difficult. But we'd like to see journals in the biological sciences and related fields make a call to their authors and to their reviewers to rationalize terminology so that studies can be compared you know, between one another so that you don't have one study that uses, let's say, race, another study that uses ancestry when studying the same thing. Mm-hmm. But how do you compare those things? So our suggestion is you know, pick some terms. We would prefer geographical ancestry. So one thing you point out in your article is that giving someone's ancestry rather than their race might be a more process-oriented description. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So we distinguish in the paper the idea of ancestry from race. On the one hand, we believe that ancestry is a more useful term, uh, a useful variable to genetics, and it's less historically loaded. Ancestry, we believe, is a process-based concept that helps us understand the admixing events that led to one's existence and contribute to our genomic makeup. Another way to think about this is that ancestry is a statement about someone's relationship to other people, other individuals in their genealogical history, whereas race is a concept that's hierarchical in nature because you place people into discrete groups without necessarily understanding the more complicated genomic histories that individuals are made up of. My thinking tends to go towards what's happening in the U.S. in terms of race, but this is something that you would want to apply globally, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, geneticists from the United States are doing work globally, particularly when they think about evolutionary questions and and broader health questions. So this isn't just a U.S. issue. I mean, most of the scientists doing research in genomics are part of a global effort. The Human Genome Project was an effort that took place across many continents. So, you know, this is an issue for all people. Hmm. One of the suggestions from your group is that the National Academies convene a panel to further delve into the study of human diversity. How would that work, and, and what kind of things would you hope to see as a result of that, uh, that kind of panel? So what we're hoping to do with the National Academies panel is to have scholars from across multiple disciplines come together to figure out a solution to this long-vexing question. People have been talking about removing race from research for many, many decades, and it hasn't happened. So our recommendation is to put a bunch of really smart people in the room who are dedicated to the study of humanity, to think about ways 
to understand human genetic diversity in both scientific and social terms that don't recapitulate these old ideas about discrete races. What we would want to see is, you know, some time spent on gathering scientific, historical, and sociological data to think about how race has been used, to talk about scientists who are studying human genetic diversity, to hear from them ways in which they think the field might move forward. And then we want to bring lots of people together to look at this data and to come up with some recommendations and make those recommendations to the field and to the journals that our work is published in. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much. Michael Udell is a historian and public health ethicist. He and his colleagues write about race and genetics research in a policy forum this week in science. Where are all the bees going? No one has all the answers at this point, but I spoke with Lena Wilford about her study that shows how a parasite called the varroa mite is driving a global epidemic of deformed wing virus, one of the most widespread honeybee viruses. So our new research has used genetic data to reconstruct the global spread of deformed wing virus. This virus is a disease that can cause winter mortalities in honeybees, so the whole colony just dies off. Our data shows that it's related to the emergence of a new vector, an ectoparasitic mite, but that the spread itself is man-made and it's driven by European populations of our common European honeybee, Apis mellifera. How are bees doing right now? I've been hearing about decreasing numbers, you know, serious problems with bee colonies for years. Is this still happening? In my mind, there's always two things here. One is honeybees, and one is wild pollinators, bumblebees, and solitary bees. There's some good news there, actually. Globally, the number of honeybee hives has been increasing. That's very much because people have been taking up beekeeping, especially in countries in South America, for example, where beekeeping wasn't previously common. So that's good news. In North America, for example, and also in Europe, honeybee hive numbers have been declining. So in the United States, there's been almost a 60% decline since the Second World War in the number of honeybee hives. Recently, much of that is due to problems with disease. Beekeeping is a very tough job, actually, so not that many people do it anymore. When we come to the wild pollinators, solitary bees, bumblebees, hoverflies, all of these really important insects, they have been declining globally, so we have lost a lot of species there, and the population size has often gone down. For example, in the UK, two species have gone extinct since the Second World War. So those are the two levels of problems we're having here. And what's the big risk here with these declining populations, the bad news part of what you just said, both of the colonies of bees and then also the more the solitary bees and other kinds of pollinators? So the bad news is that we need pollinators for our food security, not so that we have enough to eat, but so that we have enough interesting things to eat, and to some extent so that we don't need to eat so much meat because we've got tomatoes and strawberries to pep up our food. We also need them for biodiversity. And that's maybe the bigger problem when we think of the wild pollinators, because wild pollinators give us resilience in ecosystems. They pollinate loads of plant species, and we need that diversity to keep ecosystems stable. Your study focuses on two organisms, the varroa mite and the deformed wing virus. What is their effect on bees and bee colonies? Together, they're very bad for bee colonies. Without varroa mites, deformed wing virus is a disease of honeybees, but if you're thinking of human diseases, 
It would be a bit like a common cold. Definitely not pleasant. I've just had one. Not good for you, but not devastating, right? It's not going to, over a lifetime, change your fitness for how many offspring you're going to have. With the varroa mite around, we're getting something that's much more like the Spanish flu that can really take out an entire colony and can cause symptoms in adult honeybees as well. So the deformed wings that give the virus its name, that's really what we we need to have very high titers, so very high levels of virus in bees and in larvae while they're developing. That's what we're seeing when varroa is around. Okay, so how do those two organisms work together to do more damage? So the varroa mite is an ectoparasitic mite. That means it lives on bee larvae and it sucks their hemolymph. That's, their, that's bee blood? Yeah, exactly. That's bee blood. So we get a double to triple whammy there because the varroa mites have this direct route into the bee blood. I'll use that word. <laughs> and as with any kind of disease, if you imagine if you there's something that you would usually get by eating it or by coming into some kind of surface contact, if someone took the same thing and took a hypodermic syringe and injected it into your bloodstream, that disease would get much, much worse and really reach a completely different level. That's the main effect that we see here. The varroa is carrying this virus inside of it and it injects it into the larva? Well, it can certainly inject it. So there's a direct transmission route there. There's a bit of an argument whether the varroa mite can replicate the virus inside itself or whether it only accumulates it. In any case, probably can get very high levels of virus right into the bees. And of course, it causes them injury. So another route to which the virus can get into and Possibly it also has some effect where it depresses parts of the immune system of the bees and makes them less able to fight off the disease. Well, we know these things are bad for bees. What are the unknowns? What were the unknowns going into your study? The unknowns that we wanted to investigate here is how does the Ving virus spread globally, geographically, but also between hosts? And we wanted to know whether this is an emerging disease that came in with the varroa mite or whether we are really talking about a re-emerging disease, something that was merely changed by the varroa mite. How did you look for evidence to support one of these options or the other of these options? So we looked at sequence data of the Fromving virus, and we used reconstruction methods to see the geographic spread patterns and the patterns between hosts are. And you found that the deformed wing virus is a re-emerging disease. What led you to that conclusion? A re-emerging virus is a disease that has been around, but a change in the host parasite interaction ecology causes an increase in new epidemic. So that's something that we are, for example, unfortunately now seeing with tuberculosis. We can see that the Fromving virus is around in um, populations that don't yet have varroa, and we also have evidence to suggest that it was there before the varroa first emerged. And we think that the varroa might end the increased movement of honeybees by humans across the globe starting about 100 years ago is what caused this worldwide spread in the epidemic. And what is the geography part from your results? What did you see in terms of where this is happening and where it's coming from? So what we're seeing is that the main driver of the global spread over the last decades are European populations of European honeybees. That's sort of the big hub that emerges. There's a bit of back and forth between East Asia, where the varroa mites are coming from, and where the sort of the hub of diversity of honeybees is. But then it's the European populations that have served as a hub going into the New World, North America, South America, and also Oceania, Australia, and New Zealand. 
And is this something that can be stopped now that you are able to trace the root of these different infectious agents around the world? Yes and no. We probably won't be able to eradicate varroa. That would be the magic bullet. That's probably not going to happen for a lot of reasons. It certainly shows us that we should really maintain these varroa-free refugia that still exist in Australia and, for example, Newfoundland is the other big landmass. So those are places where there are no varroa mites at all? Yeah, there's no varroa mite there yet. But the bigger message to take from all of these results that have come over out our work, but also other research over the last few years, is that these are multi-host pathogens. They don't just infect honeybees. They infect wild pollinators as well. So, And beekeepers really have sort of the big sentinel function there in keeping their honeybee colonies healthy. They're also helping to protect wild pollinators. I guess that's our main message, really. Beekeepers, keep up the good job and think of the pollinators around you. <laughs> How does this relate to what uh, is called colony collapse disorder? Well, colony collapse disorder is, by my definition and many academics' definition, what happened in the United States in 2006 and 2007, where for reasons that we still haven't been able to really nail down, there were huge mortalities um, of honeybees with, with very unusual patterns. The whole colonies were just being abandoned. And that, that really only happened to that extent once. If it had been deforming virus, our American colleagues would have found that out, but they did the study to look for that, and it, that wasn't it. So colony collapse disorder is a somewhat different topic. It does highlight the scale of things that can happen in a highly domesticated species. Is this a good model for some of the effects we might see as global trade just inevitably increases? What this highlights on a broader scale outside just pollinators is that it shows that even with the best of intentions, when we move around animals and plants globally to places where they aren't already, then we risk spreading disease and this sort of thing has the potential to happen. Lena Wilfert, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Lena Wilfert is an evolutionary geneticist and senior lecturer in molecular evolution at the University of Exeter. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.